Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 110 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before I get to this week's guest, Zach Blair from Rise Against, I want to remind you that it's Christmas in July at MistressCarrie.com. Get 10% off of everything in the online store. Just use the code July 2022 at checkout. Rise Against recently released their new EP, Nowhere Generation 2. And the band just returned home from Europe, playing their first shows overseas since before the pandemic. And I got a chance to sit down with the band's guitar player, Zach Blair, who was not only recovering from the European trek of the tour, but also preparing to kick things off again this Friday in Vegas. Rise Against will be out on the road with The Used, making a stop in Boston at the new club Roadrunner on August 12th. You can get the details to that show in the show notes of this episode. Zach and I talked about songwriting, his upbringing, the new EP, how technology has changed in recording music, what it was like growing up in Texas and a fan of punk music, his dad, the radio DJ, the price bands pay for making political statements. We talked about his former band, Guar, his brother's band, The Toadies, guitar tone, fantastic songwriting, and so much more. Allow me to introduce you to Zach Blair from Rise Against. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Zach, how are you? Hi. How are you? I'm good. Good morning. Uh, thank you. We were just talking about how I'm, I'm all deep and hoarse and froggy, and um, I am not sick. I just have a thing. I don't know what's going on. You sound like I do in the morning, like that Peter Brady Brady Bunch episode where <laughs> yeah. you're going through puberty all the time. <laughs> Yeah, right. I sound like that every morning. I've tried everything and nothing works but like just talking and drinking like coffee. That's how I rationalize my coffee addiction. Just getting it out there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's awful. Uh, It's a good thing you can play guitar. Then you don't have to worry about it quite so much. Totally, totally. I'm, uh, yeah, I got that. And we're leaving Thursday, so it's good that... uh, so, I'm, I'm not sick, I guess. Well, uh, didn't you guys just get back from Europe, too? We did. It was like, uh, it's going to be 12 days at home uh, and then, yeah, back out. It's a lot. I mean, it's 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 got to be nice because you were home for so long. But at the yes. same time, you kind of got thrust out of a cannon from not touring at all to being everywhere all the time. 
I'm not complaining because I, my life, my job is, it's a unicorn for sure. You know, I, I, it's a fairy tale existence that I have. I do not, you know, there are people that actually work jobs and, and I do absolutely what I love that I would do for free, but it is, you know, I, I don't have children. I am married, but I don't have children. The rest of the guys all have children. So it, it is harder on them, but it's how we make a living. So the more we tour, the more we work, the more, you know, <clears throat> it's, it's what you do. You know. How was it to finally be able to get in front of those massive European crowds after so long off the road? That was crazy because, you know, that that was the thing I it, it sounds hack, hack, hacky, but that was the thing I think I missed the most was just being in Europe because we go to Europe two, three times a year sometimes. And, you know, there's nothing looks like it. Cobblestone streets everywhere. And, you know, you can't drive down all of them and all that stuff. And so being able to see that and witness that and take in that culture and visit their art museums and just do all the things that you you do over there was something I missed so much during pandemic. I think it was the thing I missed the most outside of actually playing a live show, um, was just kind of being a citizen of the earth and just wandering, you know, and taking in things and seeing things that you don't see over here. I mean, everything over here is ostensibly 200 years old over there. You're seeing a, a, a you know, stone that says it's been there since 1297 or whatever you know it's crazy that shows the difference between how you and i travel because the first thing i always talk about is the food (laughs) oh yeah you know that too of course that but yeah it just you know and there was a time i was never one of those doomsday people like we're never gonna do it again live music will never come back i knew it was i I, you know I, i wasn't as as you know doomsday is that but but i didn't know when it was going to happen and so i was i was really i was really really happy to get back over there for sure rise against is a chicago band but you're in austin is that where you wrote out the pandemic is is in that room i'm looking at right now with all your cool stuff pretty pretty much yeah this is my dumb office that looks like a 14 year old boy like (laughs) got a job um it's where i it's it's my office, but, uh, but I'm from Texas. I was born and raised and I joined Rise Against about six years into their career, seven years into their career. Um, and I've been in ever since. But we toured so much, as as aforementioned, that it never really mattered where everybody lived uh, when they were starting their sort of formidable years. It did. But now our drummer lives in Denver, Colorado, where he's from. And uh, I live here and Joe and Tim live in Chicago, the Chicago area. So that makes, you know, a lot of bands have talked about wanting to continue being creative and doing it during COVID when you either had to learn how to write songs remotely or you had to decide whose house is the coolest and where are we all going to test for COVID and then go take over their guest rooms and we're all just going to live together in a commune and ride this thing out. (laughs) Right, right. Which sounds fun, actually. Um, That's what's great about this, this life is that it's still... It's still what you did when you were 14 years old. You still get in a room with a bunch of guys and you talk shit. Can we cuss? We can cuss. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Okay. Okay. You talk shit and you trade riffs back and forth. It's still so fraternal. It's still so uh, youth based in that, you know, for for my youth, because that's what I did. I was practicing in really hot garages in Texas and, you know, nearly passing out and not drinking enough water and just. I've got this riff, this real cool thing. And that's still how it gets done, at least with our band it is. But you're right. Pandemic forced you, if you were not already tech savvy, to be a little tech savvy and to send a garage band demo. And then that's how you did things. We actually just got together, I believe, twice where we had tested and we did all that stuff and quarantine and everything. And then got together for two lump sums. 
in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado, which is where we record our records uh, with Bill Stevenson from The Descendants and All and Black Flag, who produces everything we do. So we got together there and then we got together in L.A. at one point just to do like all of our press, all of our photos, all of our, you know, the L.A. stuff, all the L.A. stuff in one fell swoop, you know, quarantine tested every day, did all that stuff. I'm just so glad that that that's over. I mean, I, as is everybody. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Well, you looked at the releasing this new music in kind of an interesting way because the way that it normally works, and obviously nothing is normal right now, but the way it normally works is that you hunker down and write an album and then you record it and then you release it and then you tour for a couple years. Then maybe you take a little time off to get to know the people that live in your house and then right. you start the process all over again. But you guys decided to kind of break up these songs and release them kind of separately, especially with this new EP and, yeah. and you're doing it kind of in a different way. Can you talk to me about how that decision got made? Well, I mean, you know, wasn't Andy Warhol who said that, you know, everybody has 15 minutes of fame and now I believe it's everybody. It, it truly that that was sort of said tongue in cheek, but that's truly the no, case. Now it's, it's just viral. That's what we it's, call it now. Right. But it's famous it's, for 15 minutes. And it's, and it's 15 seconds, I would say, but, the byproduct of that is that attention spans are so much shorter. You know, I think as, as a culture, we have attention deficit disorder, but it, anyway, but now that is so further enhanced uh, and it's the true nature of scrolling, isn't it? You know, you look at something for four seconds and you go on. And so for us to have this big body of music, we're like, well, we realize this is asking a lot of our fans or the flippant fan, the fan that's never heard of rise against. And so here's, you know, 17 songs or 16, whatever it was, um, all at once. And, you know, I mean, really, you could just put them out in three different EPs or four different EPs. You know what I mean? So it might have been even more fitting for the times. But that was sort of the catalyst behind that was to to do it that way, just to to sort of directly uh cater to someone's uh, short attention span <laughs> and, and our own, you know, and our own actually. So. I always thought that being in radio kind of gave me ADD because it's like, right. you know, back before the computers, you had to be able to get to the bathroom and back before the end of a Green Day song. Like that's a skill. My dad called my, I, I grew up in a radio station. My dad was a radio DJ. My, my That's what he did for his whole life. That was my dad uh, in North Texas. He did like the classic rock request uh, all night show. Like he went to work at 10 PM. He got off at like 7 AM um, or whenever, but he would call them shit songs. So he had like stairway to heaven, you know, things like that. Um, Grand Funks, TNUC uh, with the big drum solo in it. I mean, and even would, Bohemian Rhapsody, if you really need to get out of the studio for a few minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that was one of his, he had like a bin where they, you know, cause it was all vinyl or eight track tapes at that point, but yeah, that's crazy. Anyway, that was a tangent. You got, yeah, go ahead. No, but that, but that, you know, the, the industry, you know, kind of makes you that way, right? Cause you're just For constantly sure. pulling stuff off the walls and juggling through stuff. And what I've noticed in the last few years, exactly what you're talking about, people used to think that something was wrong with me because <laughs> I was just constantly going hundred miles an hour right. and nobody says that anymore because everyone else is going hundred miles an hour now too. I agree. And, you know, I, um, right now is not a good example because of whatever's going on with me, but I'm a fast talker. I'm a fast thinker and I always have been. 
this does actually sort of cater to me, you know, like this new way. I did notice, don't read the comments, ever read the comments. I know that, but I did read the comments on an interview at one point because even I was thinking, oh man, I'm talking real fast on that. And somebody was like, this guy's on drugs. What's he on? What's, you know, the whole thing was just like, and I was like, yeah, it's fair. I I, I get that. You could just tell people that you're from Boston like me because all of us up here in the Northeast you don't talk fast to me. It's very, it's very fast. Are yeah, you yeah, sure yeah, you're yeah. from Texas? I am absolutely from Texas. I don't have an accent because of my dad. He had a non-regional specific, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You learn how my, to turn it off and turn it on unless oh, yeah. he had a few beers, right? And then all of a sudden the Texas came out. It would come out a bit. Yeah. yeah. My mother, my mother sounds like Ellie Mae Clampett. Like my mother's, <laughs> my mother's accent is really thick. it's it's like like hollywood and movies have never gotten the texas accent right all they need to do is like have my mother on set to like teach them how to do it you know they never yeah. get the boston one right either right right i i think if you're from there you know you, you just know. yeah it's like they think everybody sounds like a kennedy and it's like exactly. nobody sounds like the kennedys but the kennedys in like a very small minute area of the state otherwise it was their thing yeah yeah and it, you watch these movies even with guys from boston sometimes you see a guy like ben affleck or matt damon or right. mark Wahlberg, and you're like have you been gone so long you forgot how to talk they don't do it the right way no! well, in, in movies for texas they always do like the georgia you know what i mean it's like like that that like sort of real south yeah you know and it's like that's not a texas accent you know anyway it, it pisses me off it pisses me off um i want to talk to you about songwriting because i can't do it and i'm incredibly envious of those that can and when you're sitting down working on rise against songs i want to know how it works are you sitting down with an acoustic are you coming up with riffs on an electric does the idea for the song come from the riff, the melody, the lyrics? Like, how does this all, what's step one? Well, we are fortunate to be in a band with a, a guy like Tim McElrath, who, our singer, um, who is just a dynamo. It just, stuff falls out of him. He just, he's very good at music. <laughs> and, <laughs> it's a good thing. Yeah. And he's one of those guys you could literally, you can give, a riff or you're messing around on guitar and he goes, well, what's that? And you go, I just did that. I just played that thing. And he'll take that. And then there's a song out of that, but he also comes to practice or whatever it is with a fully fleshed out song. That is amazing. And you just go, my God, you know, you're in awe of this thing. So he's, he's, uh, we are very, very, very lucky that that we we are in a band with that guy. And, uh, you know, he writes 100 uh, percent of the vocal melodies in the band. He writes 100 percent of the lyrics in the band. So it's hard for me to speak to that. I have other projects where I write vocal melodies and I write, you know, things like that. Um, and I'm seriously just in awe of him because his are always great. And they again, they just fall out of him. He does this thing called fricashina, we call it, where he doesn't have a lyric, but he has a vocal melody. And he just makes word like noise with his mouth. that sounds like words. It's like he's speaking in tongues. P pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll have a riff and he'll just go, wait, and he'll come. I mean, off the top of his head and he'll be something will be coming out of his mouth. That sounds like a lyric or a vocal melody, but it's not. It's nonsense. It's babble. And then sometimes he'll write lyrics to those sort of phrase sounds 
because those worked well within the parameters of whatever the vocal melody was. It's it's something to behold. And I'm, I'm, I'm constantly impressed with him. I've talked to a lot of musicians that say that they don't even feel like they're the ones that write the songs, that they just feel like the songs already exist and they're just the conduit. It sounds kind of like that's how he is. Yeah, he he's 100% like that. It, it it's, it's an antenna for this thing that's in the ether that he just kind of pulls out. It's it's when you see it on that line. I've been in bands since I was 18 years old, one of which being Guar. I was in Guar for a long time. And, you know, I've never witnessed it like that. You know, that sort of like like taking dictation from some other being or something, you know. Yeah. That's probably where I met you years ago. The radio station that I used to work at, WAF, we did a contest where um, a couple won the ability to get married on stage with Guar, and we did a whole oh, wedding. God. And then right after they took their vows, we fed them to the meat grinder. It was amazing. What There's, year was that? Oh, God. It had to have been like 98, 99, something like that. That was me. And they, they're they still married with three beautiful kids. <laughs> oh, my God. I think I remember. I honestly think I remember that because I was in Guar from about 98 till about 2002, 2003. Uh, so that would have been me. At the Worcester Palladium. It was awesome. The crowd sold out show. Crowd went crazy. Black wedding dress, like the whole bit. And then right after they kissed, they got fed into the meat grinder, blood yep. everywhere. Still married. I do think that I believe that that's amazing. I do. I do remember that. We also did a metal fest at the, at the Worcester Palladium. And I remember Deicide played. It was us and Deicide and Dillinger Escape Plan. That would have been like 2000, 2000. Yeah. The New England anyway. Art, Hardcore and Metal Festival. Yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes. That's yeah. That was. Yeah. Uh, that um, was crazy. So if you've been in band since you were 18, when did you pick up a guitar first? Like when did was, that start? I was nine. Actually, I, I've been in band since I was 14 not 18 jesus christ that's a long time <laughs> anyway um i was nine but i wasn't i was a child so I, I wasn't really serious about it until i was about 11 and uh my dad had bought me an acoustic guitar and i could like fit inside the case because it was so big so it was impossible to play but my dad was a radio dj and one of his radio dj buddies was like a, a young musician guy he talked my dad into getting me an electric guitar when i was 11 so he's like he's never going to play that acoustic it's like the action on it where the string you know i could see through it was it was impossible to play that's the that, space between the strings and the neck that's what yes, that means for yes. us non-guitar so, players sorry i'm so sorry but my hands i just couldn't do it and that man uh i i have to have a shout out he unfortunately passed away yesterday morning uh oh, that talked my really? dad i know i know it's awful it's awful also lifelong radio uh, he worked, his name was Ted Nichols Payne, and he worked uh, for Dallas, like sports radio. Uh, my, my dad had trained him to be a radio DJ. Anyway, he's the one that talked to my dad to get me an electric. That's why I am a guitar player now. So big, big, you know, uh, condolences and RIP to Ted Payne. Anyway, um, it's very fitting you asked that question. So uh, I got serious in earnest about it when I was 11. And so it's, I've never, that's all I've ever done. I mean, that that saying, you know, those that can't do teach kind of thing, you know, I, I don't have any musical ability, yet I work in music and talk about right. it all the time. Right, Did right. your dad have musical ability or was he like me and he just loved being around it all the time? Where does the musical ability in the family come from? My dad was absolutely like you. He was obsessed with music. I think he felt like he had missed his window for like perfecting an, an, an instrument. And when it came down to like college and now what are you going to do and figure out what you want to do with your life? 
he chose, uh, you know, back then you needed a degree, which I have my dad's degree. No way. Really? Yeah. Back in the day, you needed a degree and you needed like an FCC license to be this, able to go on the air. This is his FCC, his radio telephone operator license, oh which was God. canceled once he, he died. And um, the other one is under that. But yeah, so that was that. And he had a, you had to get a degree to you know speak to the public. Um, but anyway, that's what he did. And he didn't have musical talent, but he was obsessed with music. And we had this great music collection and, and, and uh, uh, album collection, which I still have. My dad was like a football dad with my brother and I. My brother is a professional bassist. He's in the band The Toadies. Huge you remember the fa- Oh, do I remember The Toadies? Oh, my Aren't God. Robert Neck is one of my favorite albums of all time. It's one of the best albums of all time. It's amazing. Talk my about bro- a band with a singer that you can't mistake for anyone else. Oh it's my so God, hard right? to have a voice that is so recognizable for a band. Discernible, yeah. Yeah. yeah he's, he is, he, he's like, you know, my brother and I both consider ourselves so lucky. I'm in a band with Till McElrath. My brother's in a band with Vaden Todd Lewis. Um, so my brother and I had a band called Hackfish when we were kids. And Hackfish got signed in the 90s and, and we toured through all the 90s. And the toadies were happening in Dallas because we were from Dallas and uh, that broke up. I joined Guar and the toadies got back together. My brother joined the toadies. I joined Rise Against. Long story short. Um, so but anyway, who's our, the musician in the family? Does No, was, no one. Nobody? That long story short. Yeah. My dad just pushed it on us like a football dad. It was it was almost like you're going to play guitar. You're going to play bass. Here are the records you're going to listen to. Here's Black Sabbath. You know, here's the who. Here's, you know, go and do likewise. And then we discovered metal and punk on our own. And stuff well, that, like that. was going to, that's what I was going to ask you. So I have a theory about music. It's two phases. Okay. You, you get it gifted to you. There's the soundtrack of your childhood that you're just immersed in almost against your will. Right. Right. And then there's a line in the sand where one day you've developed your taste enough where you recognize something that you discovered on your own and you go, wait, I like that. Not because dad played it for me or my brother, but I like that because I like it. So if Sabbath and Zeppelin and all of that stuff was the soundtrack to your childhood because of your dad, what was it that crossed that line and you said, no, wait, I like that? I think what spoke to me about punk and metal and stuff was was honestly, we we were raised in this really shitty, small, podunk Texas town, Uh, Christian, right wing. You know, we I knew I didn't fit in. My dad didn't fit in. My dad was, he looked like a biker. He wore sunglasses all the time because he was blind in one eye. Um, we weren't raised religious with any religion at all. And I, I think what appealed to me about punk, it's a, such a great question, was the fact that it was counterculture. The fact that I knew it would piss off people at high school. The fact that I knew no one else listened to it and it was mine. You know, it was I, I attached my identity to it because I was so, it was that age. Yeah. You're looking for the thing. Why am I different? What's, Young what's, kids don't understand now. And I know I sound like an old person saying that, but there was a time when music was literally stamped into your identity. Right. That when you listen to that band, you wore their patches on your jacket and that made <clears throat> a statement about who you were as a right. person. Whereas now you can kind of listen to everything and everybody does. But back in the day, when you decide this is the music I like, it said something about you as a person to the rest Absolutely. of the world. And let's also face it, that was 
that was your tribe. If you saw somebody else with that shirt on or that patch, you go, Instantly we're friends. friends. Yes. Yeah, we're friends because you get it. You understand me. The fact that you have an Exodus patch on or DRI or whatever for me, you know, it's like we are lifelong friends. And all of my friends were those people. You know, I there was a small collection in Sherman, Texas that like listened to Metallica. And, you know, being in Texas, we didn't have the ability or the fortune of being from a coast that we can align ourselves to some scene. We got what we got. So if it was Dead Kennedys or Black Flag or Metallica or Slayer or Thrash Metal, it was all the same shit to us. You know, it was all counterculture. It had upside down crosses. It was going to piss people off. And it was fast. I'm hyperactive, as I've already mentioned. And <laughs> that speed was something that was like, that was like when I see people talk or hear or read about people talking about what Dylan did for them when it spoke to them. You know, Bob Dylan was the person. When I heard that really fast beat, I was like, this is the music I've had in my head my whole life. You know, this is, this is my, that's my heartbeat, you know? And I, and I didn't feel as crazy, I guess, you know? I tell people all the time that the greatest gift my mom gave me ever was the Beatles. Sure. Because absolutely. that was her, that was her, I mean, she loved all music, but I have such distinct memories as a child of listening to those Beatles eight tracks and learning how to put the needle on the record player. Sure. And it's like, you can't wonder how somebody like me ends up like this right. when you let me listen to the White Album when I was five. Right. This is what happens. Well, and 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 it's funny you said eight track too because if you didn't if you didn't have to mess with eight tracks then you don't you don't get it you know <laughs> they were such a pain in the ass yeah but but rewind. it made music portable though it fully did it fully did which people don't understand it's important it's like look you couldn't take your album in the car right but eight tracks made it so that you could take your music with you. Otherwise, you only had the radio, which for a radio DJ right. is great. But but all of a sudden now, you know, you had a compartment in the car with these eight tracks in sure. it. Sure. And you're driving these amazing hot rods around, right? With these yeah. eight track tapes. Like, it changed how you lived with music. Right. I mean, you know, my, my, um, my dad, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, the radio was done on eight tracks. You know, he was putting in eight tracks. I remember that. We I'm used so them for commercials for a long time. They were called carts. Oh, so carts. When, yeah. Carts. That's yeah. what it was. That, yeah. That, that's what. So you, how, when did you get into radio? Well, I, I started college in September of 90. And oh, there wow. were still record players and reel-to-reel machines. I sound so fucking old right now. But as everything digitized, I kind of learned <laughs> along the way. So when I started on the air in Boston full-time in 98... The station was still playing carts and CDs. Wow. And then right about 2000, they moved the studio. And when they did that, they automated the music library and the computers took over. And that started in 2000. But I feel really grateful that I learned all of those skills analog. Like I learned how to edit audio with a razor blade and a grease pencil. And you know, from wow. being in a recording studio, oh yeah, you can recording do everything on. digitally now, but those fundamentals you still use. And if you know the pain of an edit with a razor blade, you don't <laughs> oh, make a wrong edit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You're making records on tape on actual tape where the edits are being, yeah, yeah. It's ridiculous. Which makes you look uh, back at all that old music we're talking about with sure. so much more respect because 
you know, like, I mean, anybody, the Beatles, Dylan, you know, Zeppelin, all those guys were in the studio making things that still hold up now sound amazing with prehistoric equipment. Right, right. And they sound great. You probably have more equipment in that room you're sitting in right now than Led Zeppelin had at the height of their career. I have a computer and amps and guitars. Like, I can make a record in here right now. Yeah. Yeah. I have I a radio those. station in my you house. Do. I call it MCHQ. This is my studio. They, that's awesome. I remember those carts because those they were like eight tracks, but they were see-through. Like some yeah. of them were clear. You could see the tape. Yeah, yeah, I remember those. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Doodle-a-loo, doodle-a-loo, doodle-a-loo. Uh, yeah, totally, totally. So let me talk to you about, about music because there seems to be, especially in the COVID era, there's a couple of different mindsets, right? There's the music that the artists were writing as an escape from the shittiness that's going on in the world. And then there's the music that people are creating inspired by the shittiness that's going on in the world. And it's two sides of the same coin. There are some artists that are like, we feel like we need to get away from all of this. So we created this music as like an escape and to entertain people and to kind of give them some happiness and some hope. But then there's a lot of artists that are like, no, we have something to say about all of this that's going on. And obviously Rise Against falls on that side of the coin. Sure. How do you feel about a musician's job? Is it, is it a job or is it just whatever creativity flows through you guys is what your responsibility is? I think it's both, you know, and and I think that's what's great about the creative arts is that there will always be something to answer to, you know, whether it's depression or anxiety or happiness or, you know, you are going to create something as a response to a global pandemic, but you are also going to recreate something as a response to falling in love or getting married, having children, and you know, there's, it's, it's constant inspiration. And I think that's why it's so genius that we get to do it. It becomes a job for me personally. I can only answer that question for myself. I feel like the job comes in with the travel, even though I love getting to travel. uh, Like we said, you know, being in Europe, walking around, being a citizen of the earth, getting there is all, you know, who wants the airport, exactly. Customs, immigration, all of that shit. Your gear you know, getting some, broken. Right. Dealing with all of that. Sometimes, you know, I mean, you your travel could could make it to where you have to cancel a show because you didn't get there. You know, that part of it sucks. And that part gets even more belabored as you get. Uh, I don't think belabored is the word actually labored uh, as you get older and, and get more set in your ways and, you know, want to deal with your more your own comfort a little bit more that part of it gets real old. Um, but I can't complain about that either. I mean, you know, like I said, I work a fairy tale job. That's just the only time it feels like work to me, you know, playing shows. I would do that for free. I do that for free at home. I've heard so many musicians say they don't pay me to be on the stage. They pay me for the 22 hours that I'm not on the stage. Exactly. That's exactly what it is because Inevitably, you're going to be in, you know, Poughkeepsie and nothing against the great folks in Poughkeepsie or, you know, some shitty put on town in Indiana or, you know, some red state, in my opinion, that would suck Um, or just whatever. And nothing against red states that Rise Against fans live in. Uh, Hey, I live in a red state. So uh, 
but you know, with nothing to do in a hotel. And that's when you're like, what the fuck am I doing with my life? You know, that kind of shit. Um, but that's few and far between, you know, again, at the perks far outweigh any of that, you know? Well, and nowadays, if you take a stance on anything on either side, half the people are going to love you for it. And half the people are going to hate you for it. And so if you're going to have opinions, it's like, you got to get your psyched up, your yourself psyched up to kind of, prepare for the abuse and the onslaught that's coming. And it, and it feels right. like that's gotten even crazier in the last few years as well, that if you're going to really be has. a band that's going to be political and kind of write <laughs> songs about the wrongs you see in the world, it's like you automatically have to like put your armor on and get ready to go into battle to defend well, that. We've had death threats before. We actually got death threats before any of this, you know, like with our song hero of the hero of war, that came out in 2008, we got a death threat. Somebody saying they were going to bring in a high powered rifle to our show. And, um, and we had security, you know, heightened security at that show and stuff like that. So you're right. If you do take a stance, if you do say anything, that's, that's something to do with your own political belief, you're taking a risk. And especially nowadays, it's even more of a risk, but this is what Joe Strummer prepared us for. You know, this is, this is what all of our idols taught us. And, and, with punk rock music specifically, as well as all the great classic rock. Really. I was going to say all the music your dad was playing totally. on the radio is a lot Absolutely. more political than the average listener would give it credit for. Absolutely. If you're not paying attention. Absolutely. Somebody, you know, like Neil Young, I mean, how many, how many death threats has Neil Young got? Credence. Yeah. Like, exactly. All of those guys. There's so much political stuff in all of that music. Sure. And we do Credence covers, you know, rise against it. Uh, we always, we do fortunate son. <clears throat> and it's, you know, and like what balls they had, you know, at that at that point, you know, in the 60s and, and, and 70s with the Vietnam War. And so most of our favorite bands that we all have in common were political and did talk about, you know, issues and things that were important to them. So we've just gone and done likewise, you know, and I don't know. I mean, it is risky nowadays. It is, you know. But I, I don't think anyone in our band is willing to be silenced because of it, you know. No. Before I let you go, I always ask songwriters this question. Um, it's a songwriting question. So it's not your favorite song, album, band. It's not that. Can you okay. give me an example of a song or two from a songwriter's perspective that you think is perfectly crafted? A song that you oh, think wow. is perfectly written and you covet it like, oh, I wish I wrote that song. But you got to break it down and tell me why. Jeez, I wish I could have prepared. (laughs) I know it's a hard question when you're a lover of music, but it definitely isn't like, oh, I just love that song because of like whatever. It's like as a musician and if if you're looking at it for the sum of its parts. Right. And you look at the the skill of songwriting, which I already said I don't have, which is why I'm so envious of the craft. I just don't understand how one minute you have nothing and the next minute you have a song. Yeah, and something's just there. And you and you made it, and you took all of these different people's opinions and all of these different instruments and, and made a statement with the lyrics, and you squished it all together, and it's there. Well, you know, with songwriting, I usually, I tend to personally go for and always am more impressed with the less is more approach, you know? 
Um, for me, it has to check a few boxes and it has to be a discernible riff, you know, memorable piece of music, um, a catchy vocal, good lyrics, but be succinct, get to the point. That having been said, I also love prog rock. I love mathy, weird metal stuff. I love all of it. I love Peter era, Peter Gabriel era Genesis. Oh, so good. I know, I know. And yes, and, and Rush, I love all of it. But I think the Beatles, like you were saying earlier, definitely, A, they crafted the greatest, I'm, I'm not even going to say rock and roll, but in my opinion, greatest songs of all time. And, and then, you know, the Who are my favorite band. And let's say, you know, oh God, I just, I wish I had a succinct answer because, you know, there's like a thousand songs are coming into my head and it's gonna be those things where we get off this and i'm like oh shit I why didn't it. i say this i know it yeah, happens yeah, yeah, all yeah. the time yeah absolutely um like speaking of the beatles like um i just talked to frank bellow from anthrax he went on for five minutes about eleanor rigby it's his ringtone I mean, by the way in case you didn't know like he couldn't stop just analyzing the melody and the lyrics and all of that stuff because it's just he's like well how can you not wish you wrote that song it's I'm going to have to agree with them on that one, but it's, you know, automatically in my head, all the great riffs are coming like UFOs rock bottom. But see, I would have chosen like that, that song. It's got a great chorus, rock bottom, rock bottom. It's got the greatest rock and roll riff in the world. But then it goes into this jam section that lasts like 32 bars and then it loses the listener. Now, if you're a guitar guy, you love listening to Michael Shanker play guitar. I get it. I'm in. I'm in. The regular average person is not in, but let's say ACDC check all of those boxes on pretty much every one of their older songs, the song back in black, great riff check, way catchy vocal, great lyrics, um, meaningful. It was a response to Bon Scott's death. And one of those things where if you're an entry level musician, that riff is chords you learned when you started playing. And they wrote this world-changing, life-changing song that's ubiquitous, like Back in Black is everywhere on the chords that any beginner learns. And still holds up all these years later. Still holds up all these years later. So there's no way, I don't know if that's my top pick, but Push Comes to Shove, it is the first thing that came to my mind. It's got a great guitar solo. It's, it's quick. You know, there is a verse chorus, verse chorus, a bridge, and a course out. So that is the Beatles format. That's the Beatles songwriting format. There's going to be a verse. There's going to be a course. If you can have the intro riff go throughout the verse, check, check. You know what I mean? It's not like, and sometimes the chorus will start the song. Here's the chorus first. There's no vocals on it. This is the music. Now we're going to go into our verse. Oh, and here's that piece of music from the beginning. Remember that? Now I'm singing over it. Here's our chorus. That's also genius. But sometimes the riff like back in black, plays for a few times, then vocals back in black over that verse that now you, the, uh, that chorus or the verse, I'm sorry, that intro if that you're listening to, now he's singing over it. And then here's our chorus. You know, it's genius. So I don't think, I'm going to think of a thousand more, but I do <laughs> feel like, and black in black is only one example of the, hundreds if not thousands of acdc songs that use that template if it's not broken don't fix it but then again if you want to 
you know, brass tacks, the Ramones, same deal, you know, same deal. It's, it is, in my opinion, when a great songwriting is absolutely less is more. Absolutely. Because you want people to sing along. You want people that aren't musicians that aren't going to study why this is so great. Like I do. Um, you want it to just hit them. You want them to go. I, it's an earworm. I've got to I've got to have this. I've got to listen to this a lot. And you get the benefit of a, of such a recognizable tone in a guy like and a player like Angus. Ab- absolutely. So discernible. He can play one note and you go, that's Angus. Yeah. yeah. You does know. that come uh, does that come from the person or the gear? Where's your tone come from? It's the person. It's 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 their hands. You know, Angus Young, he regularly plays Marshall, uh, uh, Plexi heads and SG guitars. You could give him a Fender amp and a Fender Telecaster. He's still going to sound like Angus Young. You know, it's absolutely the good person. problem to have. I think so. <laughs> and as a musician, you always want that. You want to have your thing. What makes you sound like you and why, you know. I think that's a hallmark of a good musician. Well, your new EP, Nowhere Generation 2, is out now. You're actually coming to Boston. You're going to be at a new club um, on August 12th called Roadrunner. We got some really cool new music venues that are getting built in and around the city. And um, I've never been inside there because it hasn't even opened yet. So I'm pretty excited to see you guys when you guys are in town. Well, I look forward to meeting you in real life. Yeah, and, and having it not be when you're in all the Guar stuff. I'm not going to be covered in blood in the middle of a wedding on stage. So we'll actually get to meet face to face. Yeah, that'd be great. It was so nice to talk to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I so appreciate it. Warm up your voice. Get some rest. (sighs) I'm going to need to. Well, especially because you're going to Vegas in a few days. You need to. I know. I know. There he is, Zach Blair from Rise Against. The new EP is called Nowhere Generation 2. It's available everywhere. And tickets are on sale right now to see Rise Against and the U's at Roadrunner in Brighton, Massachusetts, coming up on August 12th. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to hit subscribe and follow the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. Plus, every weekday, you get the sit rep. The Situation Report is all your rock news, music headlines, and industry info in less than five minutes. You'll also find the link to this episode's corresponding playlist in the show notes. I make a playlist for every full-length episode of the podcast that's filled with my guest music and all of the music referenced in our interview. You'll also find links to Zach's social media. You'll find links to Rise Against accounts, and you'll find the Mistress Carrie links as well. Take 10% off of everything you buy in the online Mistress Carrie store for the entire month of July. Use the code JULY2022 at checkout. And don't forget to join me every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern, live on my official Facebook page for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room, and check out the Mistress Carrie radio show on a radio station near you. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.